Hi, everybody. Hope the week is great. Welcome back for episode 14, which is going to be a very unique episode that I am both nervous and excited about. Episode 14 is actually my story. Uh, I realized after I spoke with Mark actually a couple weeks ago that my story was missing. And I hadn't thought about it because I've been so focused on hosting this podcast and getting it to a great place uh, that I wasn't worried about myself. And you'll learn more about that in the episode. Uh, Mark so graciously offered to host me for um, his podcast, uh, Thanks for Asking. And as part of that, I figured this week it would be a special opportunity to get closer to rounding out the story of the family um, by adding mine in. So uh, please know I am very vulnerable and nervous about this, but also very excited to uh, continue to to grow this and uh, share as much as we can for you. The episode talks a little bit about just our life growing up, my opinions, uh, my perspective of Chris's journey, what I saw, what I felt, um, and I get to dive in a little bit on, on just the mental side and some things that I'm dealing with even until today. Uh, I hope you guys can relate to this, especially as family members. Um, I fully believe that we are all on a journey that doesn't necessarily end uh, in discovering ourselves, who we are, how we're going to continue through life, um, and the choices that go along with that. And every single part of our story is is um, something that plays into that, it plays into who we are, um, and essentially forms the way um, we, we move through our lives. So I'm really excited about this. The one thing that I did not get to speak to in the story, actually there's a lot that I didn't get to speak to, um, but you can only do so much in an hour. I have to say, and I haven't said it this bluntly before, um, there's something special about Chris. There's something special about Chris's friends um, and the the amazing people that have gone through uh, this this just awful disease and and recovered. And those who haven't recovered, we have faith in you every single day. Um, I knew at a very young age, I, I taught Chris how to ride a bike without training wheels one morning. And I just remember thinking, this kid is special. And I've had very specific moments throughout my life that I've gotten back to that point. I felt those moments. I felt his special nature as a human. And uh, that has never faltered, not even through the really dark times. Um, but I will say that in, in recovery, in learning about this disease, in going through this process with him and with our family, I've just continued to feel that even more. Um, there's just something special about this kid. All that to say, that is the reason I wanted to move forward with this podcast. I've heard a couple people say, do you really love your brother that much that you wanted to kind of put this much time into something that's not your job and not your day-to-day? And the answer is yes, because I just know there's something to it. And I hope you all feel it too. I hope you feel it through these stories. I hope you understand what we're trying to do and can't thank you enough for listening. So Chris, I love you so much. Um, and I hope that you all enjoy this episode. It's very different. Um, again, I would I would normally um, label this episode differently and approach it as a thanks for asking episode, but I figured this was a good opportunity. So um, sit back, relax. Uh, thank you in advance for the patience in my talking and in my story. Uh, again, we hope this brings you more. Uh, and, and every week, we hope you get more and more insight out of our stories. Uh, Mark, thank you so much for the opportunity to uh interview me, flip the switch, if you will. Uh, And I can't thank you enough again for the partnership. Without further ado, enjoy episode 14.
Morning is a podcast episode brought to you by your friends at WSCA 106.1 FM, Portsmouth Community Radio. For more information on how you could become a member, please visit us at www.wscafm.org forward slash support. recovery has been very long. I, I definitely um, was very close to him growing up. He admitted to me that he's addicted to pills. very quick change in the emotions of the rest of the family. Welcome back, everyone. Uh, This is Mark LaFay from uh, WSCA and the WSCA Addiction and Recovery Podcast Series. As many of you know, we have two parallel series that are ongoing. We have the Faded Series, which um, I sort of piggyback uh, with my friend Jackie Berry, who we're going to introduce in just a moment. And that's primarily the story about her, her family, her brother who is in recovery, as well as their friends. And then also we have the Thanks for Asking series, and this, uh, and this is uh, a series that primarily focuses attention on family members who have loved ones who are in recovery. So we're producing this, Jackie and I, for both audiences in both series. And uh, with that, I'd like to introduce Jackie Barry. Hi, Jackie. How are you this afternoon? Hi, Mark. I'm great. How are you? I'm very excited to be here. <laughs> uh, be careful what you wish for, dear. I have been worried. The, the no, flip. there's nothing to worry about here. So um, thank you for taking the time here. And um, just as a way of introduction, I want to, again, um, you interviewed me about a month ago. And uh, that was an eye opener to a lot of people, including my family, my family and friends. I know your mother was mortified. Um, no, no way. <laughs> um, but it's in any event, thing. yeah. So in any event, um, you know, here we are on opposite sides of the table um, in the same room, I might add. And uh, we're going to learn a little bit about you and you know how your brother's addiction. Um, 
you know, how you and your family members uh, dealt with it and what you've learned and what advice you can offer to other folks that might be either dealing with the same thing or just have some sort of a, a healthy curiosity as to how they can be prepared in the event that something like this happens to them. So with that, tell us who Jackie Barry is. Oh, my goodness. You know, I ask that myself that question sometimes, too. Um, so I am, um, I live in North Carolina. I am the oldest of three kids. Um, and we'll get into the Barry family dynamic as well. But um, I am a tried and true older sister. Um, I am a protector. Um, I love music and um, dancing and kind of grew up in the entertainment side of things. Um, have always had a passion and fascination uh, with people and learning about people. I didn't really think much of that until kind of these formative years. Uh, but I'm just somebody that is, I, I live and love to laugh. Um, I'm very kind of straight-laced uh, by nature um, and just really enjoy the positive um, kind of um, healing things about life. And so I feel like I've tried to work really hard to build up my career. Um, I've tried to keep my passions throughout that time um, and, and really just tried to be who I am today. And I'm, I'm proud of myself. So I, I just want to learn a little bit more about, um, you know, your education. Uh, what do you do for a living? Um, you know, what, you know, tell us a little bit more about who you are as a person and as a professional. Absolutely. So um, I actually have a, a kind of a funny story going into my career uh, in high school and growing up. My dream was to be on stage. Like I said, I sang and danced growing up. I'm super passionate about the, the world of entertainment and music and Broadway was my calling. You can ask my dad that someday. Um, it was what I loved, what I was um, kind of drawn to. And uh, toward the end of high school, uh, my path kind of led me to wanting to be a choreographer. I wanted to do that for movies, TV, whatever. Um, and in my nature, as I was describing myself earlier, um, I chickened out essentially. So I worried, <laughs> um, what if this doesn't work? What do I do? How Always do, good to have fallback? a backup plan. <laughs> right. What's my fallback plan? So, um, in learning about my fallback plan, um, I realized that it was probably the safer bet to, uh, try and get a business degree. And in doing that, I also realized my passion for sports. Um, so sports and entertainment. I also happened to go to high school right across from PNC Arena here in Raleigh uh, and decided that I was not going to be on stage. I was going to pursue a career off stage um, behind the scenes. And from there, I became obsessed with this world of customer service and how can I mold my love for customer service into the sports and entertainment world. I didn't know if that would come in the form of a tour manager of a concert, um, of working at a venue, whatever it might be. I just knew that it had to involve some form of entertainment or sports. Um, so long story short, I went to school, um, got a marketing degree from UNC Wilmington here in North Carolina at the beach. Um, and, uh, realized that I could graduate a little bit early. So I took, um, uh, my my senior year essentially was done online 
plus at school, um, one class in person at NC State in Raleigh um, so that I could take my dream job at the time, which was um, working at PNC Arena. So I had grown up across the street from there. Um, that was where I wanted to go. I was able to get a foot in the door. And um, six and a half years later, um, I realized that I was just in love with my career. I'm so glad where I went. Um, and from there, um, so I ran all the suites and premium seating um, at PNC Arena. So PNC Arena, for those of you who uh, are not hockey Krishnas like uh, <laughs> I am and like, um, <laughs> like Jackie's dad, and I'll get back to my relationship with Jackie's dad in a minute. But um, tell us, uh, PNC Arena, uh, for those of us who live up here in Bruins country, what does that entail? Yes, home of the Carolina Hurricanes, former Hartford Whalers. Um, Go Whale. <laughs> and dad still very proudly wears his Whalers jersey, by the way. Um, but yeah, home of the Carolina Hurricanes, also home of NC State men's basketball. That's actually what the arena was built for. Um, and then certainly any of the concerts and events that come through there. So I, I had a big job, especially being 20 years old. Um, I was not even 21 by the time I started there and um, loved it, loved everything about it. Um, and then now my career has taken me to um, one of my sweet clients actually um, moved over to an agency that I currently work at. And um, shortly thereafter asked if I wanted to come and work for a marketing agency, um, which I didn't know much about, but um, essentially after now eight years at this great marketing agency, um, I went from working on one specific client to uh, now being very passionate about the world of business to business. Um, and so essentially I work in business to business hosting for big brands. Nice. Um, and we do that through sports and entertainment experiences. Um, we're stemming into lifestyle. We're doing that. I've got a team now. So um, like that in a flash, I'm now um, doing so much more than I ever thought I would do. So it's, it's well, a great career. I enjoy it. Good for you. Good for you. I'm sure your parents are very proud. Um, <laughs> so you mentioned that you're the oldest. Yeah. Um, and maybe you can introduce the other members of your family. But before you do that, full disclosure, as I meant, I meant to say earlier. So I've known Jackie's dad since 1978, 79. Uh, we were both at uh, WPI, which is Worcester Polytechnic Institute out in Worcester, Mass. And uh, through your dad, after I had graduated, uh, I had met your mom when they first started uh, seeing each other back in the 1981-ish 80, 81 timeframe. So I have a history of knowing both your parents and, um, which is kind of strange how this all played out. So anyway, tell us a little bit about the Barry family. It is. It's a small world. And I love that you know them from back then. I have so many questions. Um, <laughs> the, the Barry family, um, is such a great family. Uh, mom and dad, uh, they met, as you mentioned, um, back in those days um, and never looked back. Um, they had me in 1985, um, followed by my sister, who's the middle child, Megan, um, a year and a half after that. So we are very close in age and therefore very close um, just in life. And then Chris came um, a few, few years after that. So Chris is the youngest child, um, my brother, um, and he is five years younger than me. So between us, it's about five years, three kids, uh, two parents, and um, a lot, a lot of love. So mm. um, we're great. Uh, we grew up just 
uh, I, that's where my love of entertainment comes from. Mm -hmm. We grew up with always music playing in the house. We're always dancing, jumping around, um, doing things together. Very, very lively uh, family growing up. Right. And I joke that we were the Partridge family, but um, lots of love, lots of fun, music, entertainment, all that. And your dad is from Hingham originally, if I'm not, if I, if I remember. And I can't remember if your mom's from Braintree or situate. Where's she from? Hmm? Quincy. Oh, Quincy. Okay. Well, I knew yeah. it was South Shore. And uh, we have some other mutual friends, friends and so forth. Um, but yeah, your mom and dad have ties to the Northeast. So they do you, sure do. Do you guys ever, <laughs> do you, you ever come up here to visit? Are you still somewhat uh, connected to New England and, and Massachusetts in particular? Yes, um, we do. We try and go up as often as we can. Um, I've been uh, through my, my travels, been able to see the family um, probably more than the rest, our extended family up there. Um, I'd loved, I joke that they raised us as a very Northern family, Northern sports, um, kind of dialect, all that. Um, I still have yet to really say the word y'all in the South. I feel like we have our Northern blood and our Southern charm, um, is what I like <laughs> to say, but yes, we love to, we love to come visit. Um, I do miss, um, kind of the vibes of the Northeast, um, but wouldn't trade Raleigh for sure. <laughs> right. So tell us a little bit about, um, and, and obviously this is not Chris's story per se, but sort of the, uh, the impact that uh, Chris's amazing and very courageous story, um, you know, the impact that it's had on you and your family. But give us a little bit of background in terms of what Chris was dealing with and, you know, kind of the history of that set the table for us. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and a lot of it I didn't know until more recently, but my brother, Chris, um, from a very young age, um, we pinpoint, you know, 13, 14, maybe, um, was, was drinking alcohol and started there, um, dealt with, um, you know, some issues that he didn't really realize until a couple years later, uh, that turned into, uh, smoking weed, that then turned into, um, you know, pills and kind of dabbling in really anything and everything that you could think of. Um, his, his kind of turning point of realizing he had an issue was, uh, when he, um, ended up needing surgery and had, um, some pills prescribed to him. So that was kind of his moment where he said he has arrived. Um, he realized that this was kind of a bigger deal. And, um, I think, you know, over the course of, you know, however long, uh, from the age of 13, um, really to the age of 20, he was, he was sober by the age of 21. Um, he battled, uh, a very deep, um, and intense battle with both alcohol, um, and substances and, um, uh, really has now been nine years sober. That's an amazing uh, story for somebody his yeah. age especially with none of us having any idea, you know, what to do when this all came about. Um, but he, he battled through, he is recovered. Um, and he went through three stints, um, in recovery, um, of rehabs, excuse me, treatment centers, um, and ended up, he went twice here in North Carolina and then the third in Texas, um, where, um, he just really has found his new passion for himself, mm -hmm. uh, for life, um, and understanding of what recovery truly is. Um, and he's doing really well. So that's an amazing story. And I don't need to tell you that he's kind of the exception. Um, yeah. and you know, it's a testament, I think to a lot of the, 
um, boundaries that perhaps you and your family put in place to protect yourselves, but at the same time, do it in a caring and loving way so that he always knew that you were there regardless you know, as to whether or not you were doing things that he cared, that he liked. I mean, I'm sure that he was, uh, he was torn. Um, so if you don't mind my asking what, give us some examples in terms of what his drugs of choice were. Yeah. Um, so he, (laughs) so the pills, um, Oxycontin, he, that was what he was prescribed. Um, mushrooms he loved. He actually has a tattoo of a mushroom, um, on his calf, um, as his drug of choice at one point, um, heroin, um, cocaine, the likes, I mean, he was, he was ingesting, um, shooting up, you know, his stories are endless. Um, and I think, you know, when you talk to him, it's, it's a good variety. And based on the time of his life, he went kind of in and out of, of pretty much everything. Um, I believe the only thing he never tried was meth. Um, but other than that, you name it, he tried it. He's got a story about it. Yeah. And, and, um, for those who are listening to this, who perhaps have not, um, heard any of the other episodes of Faded, uh, we will provide um, links and so forth uh, to those that are interested. And you can find those on the WSCA podcast website. Um, And they are quite compelling, all of the stories that are up there. And you've done an amazing job in producing those. Um, So was he, in your opinion, uh, or basically after you've learned in terms of, you know, what his story was and, and so forth, did he have, um, you know, was he running away from any like emotional or physical pain? Did he have tra- uh, childhood trauma that he was escaping with? Was he trying to fit in? Did he like the effect and therefore he was chasing that first buzz again? Give us a little bit of context in terms of really what was making him, um, you know, d- making him, you know, have these issues with all of these uh, different forms of drugs and alcohol. Yeah, um, I I certainly you know can't answer exactly for him, but what I will say is I I definitely um, was very close to him growing up, and what I what I think is interesting is I don't know of any you know specific trauma or incident or anything specific again that I know of, um, and he has not stated anything, but I I don't know that there was any specific trauma that he went through. Um, We had, like I said, a very great childhood. We had everything we needed as a family, um, tons of love. So when you look at his story and when you hear him speak about his story, um, there's, it's, it's kind of interesting to think that he then went through something so harsh because that makes you say, well, well, what led to that? Right. Um, and, and the way he describes it generally is that the effect produced as soon as he took that sip of alcohol, yep. there was something about it. Um, and regardless of the fact that he, you know, threw up everything, you know, after nine shots of alcohol, um, he still wanted more. And right. I don't think that that ever stopped. I, I, I think it was interesting. Um, we spoke with, um, a wonderful friend of yours, John Udis, and, and, um, he mentioned, and it really struck me that everyone will go through some form of trauma in their life. Trauma is such a scary word, but, um, you know, there's always emotional things that happen mm. to all of us. And so I can't think of a moment for Chris that I know of that maybe triggered that or that he was running from. The one thing I will say is 
Um, when he was younger, he, you know, there were times where he was, you know, probably overly emotional um, as far as crying a lot, or, you know, he would sometimes throw fits at night because Megan and I got to go to bed um, a little later, things like that, that seemed like normal little kid things. Sure. Um, could that been, could there have been something more to that? potentially. Um, I don't know, but I think it's interesting because in him learning about himself now through this recovery program, um, he's, he's really just so far in tune to himself that it's, um, it's, it's been interesting to hear that. Yeah. There were things that were part of his personality that are leading to, you know, these insecurities and then this ego. And, and, and as we learn more about this disease, um, it's interesting to hear from him what he has unpacked about himself years later, right. but nothing that I can pinpoint, honestly, okay. great childhood. Yeah, so. no. And, and it doesn't necessarily take, you know, everybody's journey is different. Um, so, you know, when he was active, did you, your sister, your parents, were there warning signs that you, uh, that you saw that you were in denial of? Um, were, were there things that you were willing to tolerate that perhaps you thought he'd grow out of? You know, what were some of the early days of your awareness of what he was dealing with, of what he was hiding from you all? Um, you know, what was that, you know, what was that like? Yeah, it's, um, it's interesting. My, I would say my dad was probably the most um, skeptical about a lot of things that he was doing. Uh, and so Megan, my sister was, was pretty much away at college for a lot of what I would have seen of Chris. Um, and from my perspective, uh, he absolutely was smoking cigarettes. He absolutely was smoking weed and essentially got in trouble the first two or three times he smoked weed. So I just, you know, I think for me, um, I always, just thought he was going down the path of being a normal teenager, um, trying things out. I, I personally root for everyone. So I would always defend him. Um, I think there were very specific stories from my parents. Uh, one, one that comes immediately to mind is dad found, you know, a glass filled with water right next to the sink. At one point, Chris had been in the kitchen and when dad went over, he realized it was a glass of vodka. And he confronted him about it. And the story goes that Chris, of course, denied it. And so things like that would happen. Um, and there wasn't much, you know, that came out of those other than dad would kind of say, I don't know, you know, I, I don't know. I don't know about all this. Um, he was also a skateboarder. He had a group of friends and, you know, by stigma, skateboarders are into trouble. Um, and whether he was in trouble or not here and there, um, there were stories of, um, you know, stealing wood or whatever it might have been. There were like these little stories that I would hear um, through my parents and I would always respond to them as he's just, who cares? He's just, you know, he's, he's just messing up. He's just a normal kid. And, yeah. um, and, and I would say the, the one time that I'm just now thinking of that I would say, I just had a strange feeling. Um, I had a group of friends that went to a dinner for my birthday. They organized a dinner um, it was my birthday. It was a beautiful day in the summer. Um, my birthday's in August. And so, uh, this group of friends gathered and I had mentioned to Chris, um, Hey, if you're around, you know, here's where we're going to be. Um, he certainly was not 21. Um, and he, he was in the area and he stopped by. And so we had a great relationship, but when he stopped by, he was just kind of a mess. Um, and he brought a buddy. Um, they just seemed like they were kind of 
out there, like a little off. Um, mm-hmm. They stayed for just a really short amount of time. Um, and as he drove away, I mean, I hugged him and he left and nothing happened. But as he drove away, I noticed him smoking and I noticed it. There just was some vibe that I was thinking that was probably the first time that I was like, something's there's something more to this, right. you know? And again, it was nothing big. It just, um, I just got a vibe. And other than that, for me, um, nothing crazy. Right. Um, and I'm sure it was right under my nose too, but I just pretty oblivious. For right, me. right, right. Um, so in those early days and, you know, I, I call it being a teenage meathead, you know, you, you know, how do you separate <laughs> things that are kind of troublesome to, you know, from things that are just typical of, you know, a teenage boy or a teenager in general. And uh, sometimes that line is, you know, it's a thin line. Um, but were there, I don't know, have you ever heard of the term signposts? You know, signposts yes, along the way you that you should be. I did. Okay. Yeah. Uh-oh. Um, so were there, did you, were there signals or signposts along the way that said, geez, maybe I ought to talk to mom and dad about this. And maybe I ought to talk to Chris about this. Probably that specific moment. Um, other than that, I think because I was five years older than him, new in my career and uh, very focused, I was working 80, 90 hours a week um, at that job. So when he was kind of in his early stages of this, I, I wasn't paying that much attention. So for me, not a ton other than those small moments. Um, but I will say that there was just that definite aura of, um, you know, he was kind of just a sketchy teenager, but, but (laughs) on top of that, I'll have to, I have to say this, like he also is one of the most loving, charismatic, um, just wonderful human beings ever. And Mm. we were always so close that I just kind of would be like, why are you doing that? Or like, I yeah. saw you smoking that cigarette or like, eh, he'll clean up soon. You know, as an older sister, um, I'm always just thinking the best and that he's just going through these years. I haven't had a brother before, right? right. Megan is not a brother, right? <laughs> it's very different as a sister to relate in certain ways. And for me, um, signposts for me were very minimal, if yeah. nothing. And, and I would, what I will say is I would hear the stories that my parents would tell me um, even if they were, you know, minimal kind of effect. And, and I, I did kind of put those down and say, oh, maybe, you know, maybe he is doing yeah. more, um, but never thought it would be anything bad. So what was the moment? Hmm. What was the moment where, oh boy, um, my world is crumbling. I have a brother who is severely addicted to opiates and other forms of uh, substances. Yeah. Um, so I think it was interesting because of what I just explained to you with me not really having any gauge of the fact that this was a larger issue. Uh, I was working. Um, I was working. It was probably, I believe it was a Friday. I can't, this, it was, this was a while ago, but um, during the summer um, and my coworker and I were kind of fooling around. We, we had a, a lower key day. And my mom called me at around 3.30, let's call it. Um, And she didn't generally bother me at work unless something was going on. Um, And so I I picked up the phone and uh, she was very calm, but had, you know, a panic in her voice. 
Um, and, and I was very lighthearted and in a great mood and kind of just, you know, we had music playing in the background and, uh, she said, you know, I'm, and she was struggling to speak. And she said, I, I, can you call me when you're done with work? And I said, sure, no problem. You know, and, and, and I said, do you want to talk right now? And she said, no, that's okay. Just, just call me. Are you almost done with work? And I thought that was an interesting question because she knew I wasn't almost done with work. I mean, six o'clock. Right. But, uh, so, so I knew something was wrong. So I hung up the phone. Um, and immediately I just got in my car. I could tell something was wrong and, um, went out to my car, called her back. And I just said, tell me what's going on. And she burst into tears and she just said, um, I just want to let you know that I just dropped your brother off, um, in Greensboro, which is about an hour and a half from here. Um, and he admitted to me that he's addicted to pills and I was shocked. I don't, I don't know how to describe it other than I immediately, I guess my immediate reaction was no, he's not right. No, he's not. He is, he's not doing well in school. And so he's trying to find an excuse or he's, he made one move and our family's being dramatic about it. Or he thinks that this is a path out of having to go to call it. I, I don't know what I thought, mm. but my immediate reaction was there's no chance that my brother is an addict. No way. And not only that, but to know that she said he was addicted to pills, I'm then thinking, what, where did this come from? Because if anything, it would have been smoking weed and drinking, mm -hmm. which I didn't think twice about. So the story goes that he, he was dropped um, at a treatment facility. And I immediately, of course, um, drove right to my parents' house um, to try and intercept her. My dad didn't know. Um, at that point, she told me that he didn't know he was working. She was on her way home. And so I, I went to my parents' house. I was not living there at the time. Um, and I just had shoes in my back seat. And I, my plan to my dad was going to be, oh, I'm returning these shoes. These are mom's. So <laughs> I was crying because I, I was starting to believe it in my head once I kind of told the story to myself back. And I walked in the door and he's dad has always been a very focused businessman. So he was in his office at home. He worked from home, um, was not traveling at the time. So all of this transpired with him being in the house. Yes, he's in the house and right. And, and he traveled quite a bit. So mm -hmm. he was in and out. Um, but yes, he noticed. And, and again, I would, I can't wait for, for you to talk to him because his recollection, I'm sure he has the most red flags, the most signposts that you can think of, but he, he was in the house and I had my sunglasses on because I was crying. And I remember thinking if I just am matter of fact enough and have this excuse of returning shoes, he won't ask any questions. And so I did, I went in, I had my sunglasses in, I hugged him. He was, you know, still working and I continued forward. And I just said, I'm just returning mom's shoes. And so I, I, you know, had the shoes walked right around to the garage, opened the garage and sat in the garage until mom came. Um, and she pulled in the driveway and I just said, I just wanted to hug you. I know you have a big conversation coming up. Um, let me know what I can do. I felt helpless because I hate not being able to fix anything. Yeah. I hate it. It's, it's in my nature to always want to bring people back up when mm -hmm. they're down. Um, <clears throat> and so all I could do was that, um, I knew she needed the time with dad. Um, and, and, and so that was when I heard, um, and I think when I actually knew, um, was 
mom and I, uh, shortly after that, um, as a first step, went through Chris's phone. Uh, we had his phone, uh, went through his Facebook account, um, listened to some very, what we perceived as scary messages um, that were very obviously tied to his drug use. Um, and then we actually went over and searched an apartment that he had only lived in for a short amount of time with a friend. Um, and that was the day that I believed it because, um, as much as the Facebook messages and voicemails scared the crap out of me, um, seeing his space where he was living, um, it was, it was, there were plates with residue, um, there were, um, you know, condoms, which doesn't seem like an abnormal thing, but I just was in my mind creating this story that was just so bad. Um, he had just clothes thrown everywhere. There was a lot of evidence of not great things happening. Yeah. And I think we both kind of looked at each other and just said, okay, like he wasn't joking. Yeah, this um, is real. There was a, yeah. <clears throat> so, and, and Go ahead. Go ahead. So, Go ahead. so what were you, what were you feeling? What was going through your mind in terms of your own emotions at that time? A little bit of everything. Uh, not quite anger at that point. I think for me, uh, I was trying to stay lighthearted for mom. So as we're searching, I was trying to be a bit jokey. Although I think the main thing for me was a lot of fear um, a lot of uncertainty, uh, way out of my element. I, I myself had never tried anything other than alcohol. So I have no way to relate to this. I, I can't, I can't understand it. Um, even though I'd like to try. Um, so a lot of fear, a lot of, um, anxiety, which I didn't normally have, um, and just uncertainty and, and no, no real good emotions other than just, I worried for him you know, and, and didn't know how to, how to deal with that from there. Right. And was there, was there a point in time where that, um, fear and that anger, um, succumbed to the stigma and you felt shame? Ooh. Um, so for me, not, not too deeply. Um, and the reason I'll say that is I, Across my life, I've been somebody that is very um, empathetic and understanding and open to any story that I hear. Um, and so for me, shame came in the form of, you know, minimal moments of me thinking, what are other people going to say to this and how do I position this? Um, but I don't think I ever got to the point where I was ashamed of Chris or shamed for my family. It was more just, how do I process this? Right. Um, but yes, I would say there is absolutely an element of shame. And I also think that um, our immediate family reaction uh, was, let's just keep this quiet until we figure it out because mm -hmm. of stigma and because of that element of shame that generally comes with that. So I could say, yes, in a, in a form there was 
an element of shame, but it was, it was, I was trying to keep that at bay because I understood that it was a larger issue. Right. And, and the reason why I ask is not to necessarily put you in an uncomfortable spot, but some of the work that you guys have been doing um, as a family goes a great, goes a long way to minimizing the shame and the stigma that's associated with families that come out. You know, everybody that I know will welcome back the prodigal child um, as coming back in and overcoming this great difficulty while the family is often left aside to deal with it privately. Nobody likes to come forward in their social circles and social circles and, you know, declare that my child's in um, treatment uh, for heroin addiction. Um, So I'm sensitive to some of the things that you guys were confronting as a family because Chris was getting the help. He was in the safe place. He was getting help. He was with the professionals. He was with the best, you know. Although I do consider the fact that he went zero to rehab about two hours after he had that conversation with your mother as yep. somewhat remarkable that he was so willing, which tells me he was he, he had had enough at the time. But yeah. this whole notion of being able to confront family-oriented stigma is something that we're really trying to get across with your podcast series as well as mine. And I think that really is where people are struggling, they're grasping for anything that they think might might work or might help them get past this this uh, crisis, this family crisis, because it really is a family disease. Would you agree? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think, you know, we'll, we can get into this a little bit later, but I've now realized this many years later, almost 10 years later, um, that I was kind of hoarding, I guess, some of the emotions that I didn't realize I was feeling because my role, the role that I chose to play in the family was to be the backbone. Mm -hmm. And what I will say is while shame may not have been fully present for me right in that moment, um, I noticed a very quick change in the emotions of the rest of the family. Um, And it was just because we didn't know, we didn't know what to do. And on top of that, we really, as a family, dealt with little to nothing before this. Mm-hmm. So we're just on our cloud, floating by. We have a great life. We're, we are, you know, in a great position for each of our paths forward. And this happened. And and to not really go through much before that, and then have this weight dropped, it changes right. things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You guys are not the same anymore. So, so Chris was in and out of a program. He went back to treatment. You said a couple more times. Um, how many false starts did you experience yourself and the family in general with regards to, um, regaining some element of trust and then having that trust go away? <laughs> I think, uh, it's why, why are you laughing? <laughs> my, my response, I'm laughing because I think uh, the first time around, right. So he's, he's in recovery. Our response to that was, Oh, he's doing it. We're, he's going to be great. Right. So I think, I think the first time around, we were very quick to say, Oh, he's getting better. He's going to be better. He's going to come out. Life's going to be good. Everything's gonna be great. Like, so I think the trust level at the beginning was great. He did. He hadn't relapsed. He like, you know, it's like, he's sick, he's getting better, he's gonna be cured, he's done, that's yep, it. Yep. This is how this goes, right? Mm-hmm. We don't know better. So I think 
to answer your question at the beginning, the level of trust for me at least wasn't really broken. I, I, I don't know if mom and dad would say the same. I think they're all of their signposts, red flags were justified in that moment, I would assume. Um, but for me, the trust level wasn't broken until um, maybe the second time around, because once you experience relapse with a loved one, you realize, A, it's not only larger than what you think, but B, maybe they don't have that much control and C, they're still finding ways to manipulate and lie and steal. And I think the manipulation, lying, stealing was almost worse the second and the, the second and third time, you yeah. know, that he went into re recovery because then it became more real to me. It just wasn't this like quick fix bandaid that he's going to right. rehab and then he's cured and then he's back. Like, it's just not how it works. And, and it really brought the realization, I think, to the forefront for me. Um, and, and I would say, I think he would justify the, the fact that he did not, I don't believe he stole from me ever, which is crazy. So he never actually had to make amends to me. So trust for me was more, I wanted to know that he understood himself to the point that he was going to stay recovered. <clears throat> and that came in the third rehab um, mm -hmm. that he went to in Texas was, so when I knew to answer your question that, that he was truly better and that the trust that had been, I think the, the uncertainty and the trust that had been, you know, a little broken, um, for me was him, him finally coming home. And I could, I could just tell that there was a visibly, there was a difference, um, in the way he was speaking, there was a difference. Uh, and I think in the, the steps that he took forward from there, the third time around that he had not taken in the past, um, were very, very different the third time. Um, and I, and I think the other thing that comes to mind on this topic is we rooted for him throughout, even after the relapse, you know, first and second time, I vividly remember being at mom and dad's having dinner, knowing that he had come out of rehab, was working, was being a great citizen, had these just great stories of, you know, reviving relationships with old friends. And we would almost every time like clockwork say, you know, I just, I'm so glad he's better. He's doing it. Like there's no concern. And, and honestly, almost every time like clockwork, the phone would ring and he would have relapsed. It so was like, as soon as we got to that point, then I was like, no, 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 there's no way. There's no way this is happening again. Right. So you know what that is? It's hope. <laughs> it's hope. Right. Yes. It's hope. So and you I've mentioned never, never lost hope. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I don't know about that. Um, <laughs> so you mentioned that the the lies, the cheating, the deceit, the manipulation was worse than the the to you anyway the the illness uh, itself. Um, you're yeah. gonna have an opportunity to uh, hopefully interview. Um, my wife, Vivian, at some point, I know that she's keen on that and she'll yeah. probably spend much of her time on that. So in terms of its impact to you, why was that so much more difficult? I mean, the lies, the cheating, the deceit that they in and of itself would not kill them. Mm -hmm. However, an overdose could potentially, you know, mean. Yeah. So 
uh, especially with somebody that you care for. So it's personal. So much. Hmm? It's personal. It's personal. I would just say that um, I, we have a fiercely loyal family, a fiercely loving family. And when somebody that you love that much does something wrong to you, um, you know, could be very minimal, um, could be, you know, stealing a dollar or, um, or lies to you. Um, the, you know, the element of trust, especially in a family, uh, as strong as ours, it, it, it you don't really think that it's going to be broken. And the moment that it is, uh, as I mentioned, things change. Um, it is personal. You, you do, you do become a part of the disease with them. Um, and the realization and accepting the fact that you're now in this with them, you're part of this story, um, they hurt you is really hard because not only are you trying to help them and trying to engage with this disease that you're not allowed to engage with, um, you then have to watch them do these really tough things to the people that they love um, and, and to people that they don't know, but, but to the people you love, you're, you're thinking, how could you do that to me, right? How could you do that to hurt me, you know? And, and what you don't realize at the time is that they know they're doing that, but it's, it's just something bigger that's going on inside of them. And, and it's really hard to understand that. So the reason that's harder than the disease itself is because they're coming to somebody that they love and doing something that is, is hurtful. Right. So that would be a perfect segue into tough love and boundaries. But before I come there, before I go there, what was the nugget of knowledge or your experience that kind of opened your eyes to, um, you know, this thing here is a, you know, it, it's a disease. It's a disease of physical craving. It's a disease of obsessing over, you know, getting the next score. Um, it's a disease of protecting um, at all cost one's addiction. Where and how did you learn about that and how pivotal was it in your recovery as somebody who's on the family side? Yeah. So we, in Chris's first uh, treatment, uh, there was a great program that was offered for family members. It was a week long. Mom and dad did the longer portion of that. And Megan and I came in at the end. They took the time to walk us through the basics of the disease, to call it a disease, um, to explain what's happening uh, in the brain and um, really give us the knowledge that we did not have any clue about before. What's interesting is I still coming out of that. So I, I learned about it. I knew it. I still had my very inner Jackie Berry in me to help him subtly, which I didn't, I was told would, would hurt him, but I didn't really believe, um, at the time. So I would do things like help him find bus tickets. I would cook him spaghetti and he could come over, but he couldn't stay. Um, I would drop him off at very strange locations that he said was going to be his bed for the evening. Um, I did even little subtle things that kept him going. And I, I thought that as long as I understood it was a disease and didn't give him money um, and didn't encourage his drug use at 
everything would be fine. And what I didn't realize was that I, even with those subtle gestures, um, I wasn't getting it. And so I would say it didn't really click for me until after the third time. So my recovery has been very long. My own recovery has been very long. And where I thought I had it all figured out the first time around. And I was like, you know, I know what this thing is now and all that. Um, it's been personally very hard for me to accept the fact that I can't engage. And I think that true realiza realization came um, after his second relapse. So I had been doing things for him. Um, I remember the moment that we got the call that he had relapsed the second time. Um, and I saw that he needed something more than I thought he needed. Um, and, and that was treatment again, but it was just very different the third time, um, that he went into treatment. And so I think him coming out of that and me now learning more and being more open to the fact that it's a disease, um, that I cannot touch. I, I, I was too stubborn throughout his first early years of recovery in trying to think that I could understand it and also slightly engage with it. Mm. Um, and, and I, it took me, you know, until that time, the third time around to realize me cooking him spaghetti and driving him places and picking up groceries is just, it's just not helping. And, so, and, and I saw that and he told me that. Um, and so that was, that was kind of the time it took a long time for me. Do you consider yourself in recovery? Yes, absolutely. And, um, and what does that mean? I, I'm in recovery because I will never. So first of all, in what I'm learning through substance abuse, you know, recovery, um, is that you're always working on yourself, mind, body, spirit. Um, we have to be in tune to ourselves. Um, I have been somebody that has always, always thought I was in tune to myself, probably from a very early age. Uh, and specifically as I've gone through this journey with Chris, what I'm learning is that I'm not fully in tune to myself and I still have so much room to grow and to learn about me. And this disease and its recovery has taught me how to look inward to myself mm. and where I, from the surface, um, all these years have been the very strong older sister and, um, kind of representative of the family. Um, what I didn't realize was that I wasn't, I wasn't working on me. Uh, and so I think it started by me trying to understand the disease as Chris went through it and, and really get to know, um, everything I could. And then I would say it's the reason I say yes, I'm in recovery is because even through doing the podcast, even through talking to you, um, learning more from Chris every day, we, we talk about this all the time. Um, we're all on a constant journey of getting to know ourselves. Mm. Um, and some have situations that bring them much deeper than others. Um, but it doesn't mean that they need to do more work on themselves than I do. Just because I don't have a substance use problem, I still need to dedicate time to knowing who I am. And right. as much as I thought I knew myself, I didn't. And even till today, this current week, um, I'm, I'm trying to apply what I've learned through this disease to better myself. And right. I'm not there. And I don't think anyone ever fully gets there. And that's the beauty of it is, is 
you need to focus time on you. Um, and, and it's been um, a whole mix of emotions in my own recovery, learning about me. So yes, I'm in recovery. <laughs> so we'll, we'll, we'll come back to uh, self-care in just a moment, but um, I want to go back to, um, I'm pretty sure it was in episode one, and I'm sure you revisited it in episode three. Um, there was a moment that absolutely stopped me in my tracks. I had to pull over when I was listening to the podcast and really to fully appreciate um, the significance of this um, incident and the strength of your mother. The time when, um, and I'm paraphrasing here, um, when, when Chris came home, he was pounding on the door, he was on the porch, he was begging your mother to let him in, give him one more chance. I have no other place to go. Um, uh, you know, I don't want to die. You know, he was throwing all of the, he was pulling all the strings and pushing all the buttons with your mom, but she held steadfast in that she was not going to let him in the house that night, which was an absolutely amazing, um, um, what's the word I want to use message of love to your, to your brother that chances are he didn't even realize that until years later. Can you tell us a little bit about that and in, 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 in that kind of that whole dynamic? Yeah, of course. Um, so first of all, my mom is, and both my parents are just incredible human beings. They have so much love and mom has always just been the most selfless, um, you know, ride or die, as we like to say, um, person to have around. Um, she is, she's always been close to all of us. She's always shown us love. Same with dad. Um, I was not there in the house for that particular moment, but I've heard the recollection of, um, all three of them, mom, dad, and Chris. And, um, it, it truly came down to mom finally stopping and listening to what someone was telling her to do, which was, don't let him back. And I, I can't imagine as a parent, let alone, you know, a family member, that's how I can relate, uh, making that call. Um, and this, and let's face it, this was mom and dad together agreeing that that was the thing, because if they weren't aligned, um, there would have been a problem, right. And maybe he wouldn't be where he is today, but, um, the gesture of locking the doors and saying, you don't live here, you don't have a room anymore. Um, I, I remember them telling us that that had happened. Um, and Chris's recollection of really realizing, um, this is a pivotal moment right now because I don't have a childhood home to go back to or any home, let alone right. I'm now homeless. Mm -hmm. Right. And I have to keep this journey up or this, this gig up. Otherwise I'm done. And, um, it was not only to your point, a gesture of love, um, to the rest of the family, um, it was a gesture of love to Chris, um, to say enough is enough. Uh, but I think everyone can agree that there was no, um, there was no violence. There was no, um, intensity beyond the gesture of love. And I mm -hmm. think that's the, the bottom line of that move was there's no, there's no yelling, screaming fight. I'm sure Chris was upset. Um, we'd have to ask him and, and them, but, uh, it's, it's just, it's getting down to that final moment where it's like, you're, you're pretty much, you're pretty much at the bottom of the bottom, mm. you know? And, um, I just can't imagine, I just can't imagine 
mom and dad and, you know, and dad's like, he's walking up the driveway. What do I do? Right. And, and she, she, and, and my dad decided, no, he's not coming back. And, and they held strong on that. And I, I can't imagine that as a parent. Yeah. So looking back, what did you do, if anything, um, for your own personal care? How did you find a way to balance your life with uh, things that would keep you sane and healthy and spiritually connected? Yeah, it's a great question. This is um, something that I'm on my journey now right now. So, and I have not shared this, so I'm really excited that, um, that you're asking this. And I think what I'm learning about myself, um, more so than anything, I've, I've always known I, um, have, I've played the role in my family, as I explained before, but I've also played that role as, you know, for any one of my friends and loved ones, um, in my life, I like to be the rock. I like to be the one that is always in control, uh, never beaten down, can handle anything. That's me, right? That's me. That's what I like to pride myself on. Um, when, when going through the recovery, um, my focus was, um, to learn about what Chris was going through. Um, I actually attended meetings with Chris every once in a while to just learn. I wanted to just entrench myself in what he was doing as much as it was appropriate. Um, and I've got some just great stories coming out of that great learning for me. So I was trying to take care of Chris, as you can see, take care of Chris and his recovery by making myself knowledgeable. So I would read, I would pay attention. I would ask questions. Um, when he was away, my method of continuing to keep going, um, was pouring myself into my career. I don't think I would have not done that if Chris didn't go through this, but it was a time in my life that I was, I was young. I was new in my career. I had the luxury at that time of being around my job for that many hours a week. So it was an easy segue for me to just pour myself into that. And then when I could check in with family or check in with Chris, I did that. Um, I wrote him letters in rehab. We would go visit him. So I was checking all the boxes that I needed to check. I was learning about this thing. I was starting to get some confidence in talking about it outwardly. Um, so that was part of the process was, okay, my brother is an addict. Um, and you know, the, the, the three segments of his journey, um, as he was kind of relapsing and, and coming back to life, um, that was, I, I slowly gained the confidence that I needed. What I wasn't doing um, was I had almost fully just kind of neglected my spirituality. Um, I, we grew up Catholic, so um, we went to church growing up. Um, we were non-denominational. Um, we, we were Catholic. We went to Catholic high school. Um, and my relationship specifically um, with God and my spirituality was, and I truly believe this, I've been through, I've learned all that. I have a great relationship with God. I don't, I don't, I pray at night and that's all I need. And, and that, that truly was the way that I felt until literally the last six months. Um, and so that's a huge part of it. I was not engaging with my spirituality at all, um, because I have a strong mind and I'm into, into myself and I don't need it like other people might need it. How silly is that if you really say it out loud, right? Um, and then additionally, what I've been journeying through because I wasn't taking care of myself. Um, I was um, 
like I said, pouring myself into my career. I think I had changed jobs pretty much um, in the middle of all of this um, and started also writing the book of Chris's story as my own reflection. Um, I still have not completed it. It's still on the docket for me to try and complete. Um, but that was somewhat of the therapy um, that I chose to do for myself was to write his story. I knew he didn't have the means to do that um, or the attention. Let's be real. He would say the same thing. Um, so I just was like, let me write your story because it's helping me get through my own thoughts. Um, and it's also helped me, um, you know, recover what, what I wasn't doing. Uh, and, and I'll fully admit that was doing my own steps, wasn't doing any of that. Um, wasn't focusing on my own spirituality. Um, and I think that's partially because I didn't really know about resources for family. Um, so we, we went through the class at the beginning, um, but I wasn't really familiar with the fact that a family member could also go through their own steps. Um, I thought it was educate, understand, be open, talk to your loved one. That's pretty much it. So so I, I hadn't done any of that. Yeah. Um, and what I'll say is, here's what I'm learning as we actually go through this podcast live. This is happening now. Um, Chris and I, about a year ago, continued to talk about his recovery. Um, he actually walked me through the 12 steps um, just to kind of give me a real life sense of what it was about. Um, I was shocked. I, um, I found so much out of it. It was so uncomfortable, but <laughs> and you did it right. Like, oh, <laughs> he was like grinning ear to ear when he watched me go through it. Cause he's like, I, I get it. Right? Keep writing. <laughs> you got it right. Like you've really got it and you really got to dig in. And, and this is not just something you're going to do every once in a while. You really need to do it every day if you can. Right. And so I, in, I didn't learn these tools um, and it's funny, we had, we had someone comment on, um, our podcast, um, recently about the fact that we haven't admitted to our own recovery as a family. And what I'll say to that is you're right. And, and that's okay because this is a journey of all of us trying to learn. And the point of the podcast is to say, here's what I know, but I'm also still on my own journey. And so I think what I've learned now, um, in looking back at things is, I always did pride myself on being strong. What I did not do is I, I did not try any sort of therapy until recently, which was very helpful. Um, and in priding myself on being strong, what I realized was not working on myself is not being strong. Mm -hmm. um, it's, it's essentially ignoring my own resentments. It's ignoring um, all of the weight that I carried uh, by choice, for sure, um, for other people. And, and it's not just about Chris's story. It's about, um, my own recovery of trying to unpack the weight that I've pushed down for so many years in being proud of being the strong one. Um, and so saying you're strong and acting strong is not actually being strong. And I just realized this as we're learning these tools of recovery in happens to be substance abuse, but you can apply this stuff um, to, to your life, right? Mm -hmm. and, and I don't happen to have um, an addiction to substances or alcohol. I have an addiction to trying to be strong for people. Mm -hmm. um, and I don't know if that's controversial to say, but that's what I, that's what drives me. And for so long, um, it's, it's actually hurt me in a way, mm -hmm. right? And so 
um, for me and what I've been trying to do for myself, um, I, my fiance and I have gotten back into the church. I'm so excited. It's been a blast. Um, so we've gotten back into church and just introducing, you know, an hour of time, um, every week to dedicate to my own spirituality has been incredible. Mm -hmm. Um, in just taking a pause, my life is always crazy because I travel, I plan events. We do a lot of things that are just go, go, go. Um, and in fact, as crazy as it sounds, this time of COVID um, has forced me to pause uh, and to stop and say, what am I doing? What am I not doing? Um, my health was in very poor form as far as my nutrition. And um, I myself was having too much wine, you know, in the evening. Um, and I would and I would just cook and have a glass of wine. And that was my own, what I felt like. I'm unpacking from the day, right? And I certainly do not have any sort of um, like uh, dependence on alcohol, but it was part of my diet that just was like bringing me down. I'm on planes every week. I, I was not stopping um, and therefore I was not taking care of myself. And so this time has really helped for the pause um, so that I can figure out that I needed to dedicate time for my own recovery, so. I got one more question, Jackie. Yeah. What is Jackie grateful for today? What are you grateful oh for? Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. I'm thankful for so many things. Um, I think at the core, um, I'm thankful for just the, the foundation of love that our parents built for us. The unrelenting um, kind of openness and willingness and um, availability from them to allow us to become our own people and to accept us for exactly who we are. Um, I think to me, as I go into my own journey of hopefully having a family soon, um, I, I would attribute their the way that they approached us as a very big reason. I'm not saying the only reason, but a very big reason why Chris um, got better and uh, was, was able to speak up to my mom in a moment where he knew he had nothing left. Um, and so I think uh, that is what I'm most thankful for is just the, the, the family around me um, and the, the role we've all played in one another's lives um, to, to be great. I think the other, the other thing I'm very grateful for is the ability for me to find uh, the journey of recovery that I'm now currently on. Um, I, I have always been so thankful that I am in tune to myself. Um, I, I like to think I'm self-aware, um, uh, for the most part. Um, uh, but I, I really enjoy, um, the opportunity for myself, um, to be able to be open with my own self to go through this. And that's kind of confusing to explain, but, um, just, just, my own willingness, I'm thankful for. Um, and, you know, all the other basics, um, having a great career. I have an incredible career um, with a lot of people that have my back. Um, I have an incredible love with my fiance who will soon be my husband. Um, and his support has been everything. Uh, and I'm just, I'm happy to have the life I do. Um, and that I'm, I'm always questioning, always um, eager, excited, curious, all of that. I'm just thankful to live in a, in a world that we can do that. 
Well, well, thank you, Jackie. That was an amazing journey that you just took us on here, and I'm sure a lot of folks are going to benefit from that. It's uh, it's a pleasure to be um, collaborating with you on this in uh, this project that I still think is just scratching the surface in terms of the help that we can provide to others. So um, on behalf of our listeners up here in the seacoast of New Hampshire, I want to thank you. Thank you so much, Mark, for all your support um, and everything you're doing up there. I know um, so many people appreciate you and um, the journey has only just begun. We're, we've got a lot of work to do and I'm, I'm really excited to have you as a great partner and um, can't wait to see where we go from here. This concludes this podcast episode brought to you by your friends at WSCA 106.1 FM, Portsmouth Community Radio. For more information, please visit us at www.wscafm.org.